before we kind of get into this morning, a um, couple things kind of off the top. Um, my daughter, like late last night, all of a sudden got really, really sick. So Lucy, sweet little Lucy, yesterday we celebrated her birthday and we thought she just had too much sugar. But then it was much more than that. So she has been throwing up like all night long. So she's not here. Kate's not here. My mom and, and dad, which are in town, they're, they're staying home, of course, to take care of her. So if while I'm teaching, just say a quick little prayer for Lucy, because it is the worst thing ever whenever um, your child or any child, just so precious and sweet, like just, you know, can't even take water in and hold it down. So it was, it was very sad. So I'd love if you just kind of prayed for her on your own as I did this. Um, and then also, I, uh, before we kind of get into stuff, I just really want to say... Um, Thank you very, very much. Um, It has been a really incredible time here. And uh, I'll be here next week um, also, so it's not like I'll see you tomorrow or whatever. Um, But um, um, as kind of the last time for me being up here and speaking to the whole uh, community at once, um, just I am am really uh, just grateful that you um, allowed and empowered this like young band nerd um, to come up here and, uh, and and practice teaching and to get better at it and, and you allowed me to kind of pursue this passion I have um, and and I think um, it took a lot of guts and trust to allow that the Holy Spirit would use someone like me to help encourage our community so thank you so much for that and then um, also I just want to um, even if you don't hear anything from like Mark today just hear this. Um, I just want to encourage you, River City Vineyard, to like keep pressing on. One of the things, as as I'm reflecting about what I love so much about this community, as we're getting ready to leave, um, and it really came into play um, last night, right? So last night, Amber and Eric were doing like a house show, right? They're musicians. Uh, they've been wanting to kind of share their music writing, and and so. Kate and I, in between Lucy throw-up sessions, we sneak away to the house show because um, we wanted to just be there and to hear a little bit of it. And and I, you know, it's a packed house. It's awesome. I feel like I'm in college again. It, it you know, um, and I'm looking around and like over 50% of as packed house, right? It's not like a small like there's a, a lot of people in their house, and over half of them were people from this community. And that's a testament to like this community gets the loving and supporting part really, really well. So, like, keep that going. You know, there were lots of you that had to, like, get babysitters to go. To, like, like that's, a, that's not a small feat, right? It can take a like, act of Congress sometimes to find a babysitter for your kids on Saturday night, okay? And that's just so, so cool that this community loves and supports each other so well. And so I, I'm just going to encourage you to, like, just keep pressing into that. That's what makes this community, I think, really special, is the love we have for each other, the support that we uh, give to each other in all the various passions and pursuits that they have. So um, I, I just really love you guys so much. And, uh, yeah, I'm just so honored to be up here one last time. So let's kind of uh, run into things. So today we're celebrating Palm Sunday, right? And, um, and I love that we, as a body, kind of do this liturgical calendar uh, because I love when we get to do stuff along with, like, the millions of other family members in Christ across the world. I think that's really cool. It's always important to remember that you are part of something way, way bigger than just this. 
And way bigger than just the church in New Braunfels. And way bigger than just the church across the world now. This is like millennia and millennia years old, this thing that we're doing. And we're just part of this incredible, world-changing story. And we get to share in Palm Sunday today with people all across the globe. right? And, and so this question I have for you to ponder today is, is this question. Family, which procession are you a part of? Which procession leads to life. And that's going to make a lot more sense as we get along. So let's, let's, let's start. We're going to start in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. We've never done this, but I think it'd be really fitting to do on this day. Can we all stand up as I read this? Um, I think it's just kind of cool to recognize the power of Scripture um, being spoken in a big body like this. So uh, I'm going to read this, in the, and, and let's just stand. And then when we get to the Hosanna part, I'd love for us to read it all together. So... When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany on Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him and will return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door at the street corner, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said, "Uh, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples replied exactly as Jesus had instructed them, and the people let them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus, spread their coats on it, and he mounted. The people gave him a wonderful welcome, some throwing their coats on the street, others spreading out branches they had cut in the field. Running ahead and following after, they were calling out. Everybody, let's say this together. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest. Thank you so much. Y'all can take a seat. All right, so years ago, um, I lived and studied abroad for about six months in Sevilla, Spain, which is a large city in the southern part of the country. And one of the cool things for those of you who um, have maybe studied abroad or lived abroad for a little bit, especially in Europe, once you're over there, it's like really not expensive at all to travel a lot from inside Western Europe, right? There's a ton of trains. There's a lot of budget airlines where you like, you know, pay 20 euro to even use the bathroom, but it's super cheap fares. So once you're over there, you might as well go exploring. And that's what I did with some friends when I lived over there. And one of the things that I love to do when I went to these cities is, uh, is I would take pictures of the statues of guys on horses, Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? There's always a statue of a guy on a horse in every city. There's always a statue of a guy on a horse. So um, I found some of my old pictures of these statues. We're going to take a look at them. Uh, let's, let's turn the lights off, too. Yeah, we just turn them all off so you can have a better picture. Still not great, but that's all right. Uh, this first statue, this is... Um, I was going to have you play a guessing game, but y'all are going to go 0 for 5. So uh, this is King Philip II, King Felipe. This is in Madrid in the big central plaza, Plaza Mayor in Madrid. Next one. Another guy on a horse. This is Henry IV. Does anyone know where this is? Have a guess. Henry IV? UK. Paris. This is in Paris. Henry IV in Paris. Next one. This is Victor Emmanuel II. This one is in Rome. That one's in Rome. Okay, next one. Y'all should get this one, maybe. This is Charles I. That one is in London, exactly. Charles I. And the last one wasn't during my travels, but a famous one. This is, who's that? That's George Washington. That's in Washington, D.C. Okay? Even in America, we have 
statues of guys on horses, right? And look, if we're being honest, um, I think there's something really attractive about these statues, right? There's a reason that they're usually in like a central plaza and a bunch of people go there and they take pictures. It's a really big tourist attraction. And I think that it's because these statues, they convey something deep down that humans are attracted to, right? These statues just, like, they convey power, right? They convey empire. They, con- they convey being victorious in war and conquering and expansion and freedom and glory, right? Most emperors, kings, presidents even, um, they're usually pictured riding on, like, this majestic war horse, right? You got the horse, you got the sword on the side, right? They got the big puffy chest, Um, It's all to kind of show uh, the people coming to these statues like, okay, yeah, these men, they were powerful men. They had powerful empires. Um, And then, uh, you can put the lights back on, sorry, Steve. And then, right, we have this picture that Mark gives us in the passage we just read, right? And it's another supposed king, and it's like not the same at all. Right Now, it's important for us to take a little step back here, and we're going to go over some um, geography and some history. It's going to be really cool, really important. Um, so we're going to have a little bit of a pop quiz. You guys are going to do great on this one. Okay? All right, so does anyone know what was going on in Jerusalem at this time? Passover. Yes, exactly. The Passover festival was going on. And every year, the Passover festival is the biggest festival of the Jewish calendar. And... Um, does anyone know uh, or anyone remember what the Passover festival was supposed to, like, commemorate? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Passover was this time of remembering God's deliverance, right, from uh, the slavery in Egypt, right? We know the story, right? God told Pharaoh, um, hey, let my people go, but Pharaoh wouldn't do it. So then we have these plagues, right? We got all kinds of stuff happening. Water turned to blood, gnats, flies, frogs, boils, not a good time to be an Egyptian, um, but Pharaoh still isn't going to comply, right? He's still stubborn and hard-hearted, and so God sends this final plague in which all the firstborn are killed, all the firstborn sons are killed, except for the houses in which there's a blood of a lamb spread across the doorframe. The angel passed that over. So, um, Passover festival is celebrating God rescuing his people, right? And Jews would often celebrate this festival by, like, reciting in Exodus this story. And they would especially um, recite, there's this really beautiful poem that God writes, that Yahweh writes himself. It's in Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It goes like this. Jews would love to recite this to each other during the festival. Then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Right, so picture this with me. Okay, try to imagine this, right? We have this Passover festival going on. There's at least, historians would say, between three and 500,000 Jews coming into Jerusalem, right? Possibly half a million Jews coming in. And because of the context of the festival, right, you have to picture, like, the kind of spirit in the air. There's this real, like, religious zeal in the air. Right? There's kind of this like Zionist, nationalistic like fervor happening because all the Jews are celebrating 
this time when God delivered them from an evil imperial ruler. And they're all fully aware that they're still kind of enslaved in a way to another imperial ruler. Okay, so there's this tension there. And Passover was, if, if, if you really want to imagine it, like it, it was this kind of tense time for the Romans, right? Because you have all these Jews, um, they're ruled by Caesar, taxed by Herod, they're oppressed by their own corrupt Jewish leadership. That's what the power of the current age was doing to them. So Jerusalem is like really volatile during this time, right? There's a clearly felt spirit of rebellion. Okay, next question. You're going to do great on this one too. Who was the Roman authority that was in control of keeping the peace and order in Jerusalem at this time? Pilate is right. Yes. So Pilate, right? Let's let's do a little uh, Roman Empire lesson, right? So all of Rome is controlled by Tiberius Caesar, right? Ruler of the empire, creator of a salad. Okay, Tiberius Caesar, right? And he and and, and Rome pretty much like it, it controls everything from the British Isles all the way to India, right? A huge territory. So Tiberius Caesar can't possibly control all of the empire all at once. So he appoints these prefects, like these governors, to kind of help out. And so that's what Pontius Pilate is. He's a governor that's looking over Judea and Samaria mainly to make sure that the people are taxed and pay their money and that they um, aren't trying to overthrow the government and really just to kind of keep them in the status quo. That's Pilate's job. So if you're Pilate and your whole job is to kind of keep things hush-hush, keep the status quo, keep the order of the place going on, and there's this festival in the largest city in your town and there's half a million Jews who are like really ramping up this religious zeal going on, right? You probably need to do something about that to kind of keep things in check. Say, hey, uh, let's turn the amp down a little bit. All right? So what Pilate does um, is uh, every year during the Passover, he would assemble this huge processional army. And he would march down from where he lived. We, we got a map up here. Um, so... And this first map over here on the left, uh, we got Jerusalem, and then Caesarea, which is where Pilate was, was up here. He would march down from Caesarea was like a good Roman city, not a lot of of you know really Jews in Caesarea. Um, so he, so Pilate had you know his headquarters there in Caesarea. So during this Passover festival in Jerusalem, he would gather a big processional army in Caesarea, and they would march down. They'd have this parade all the way down, and they would enter the west side of the city of Jerusalem. On the right side map, you can kind of see Jerusalem. There's a gate on the west side. That's where um, Pilate would kind of have this display of power. And the processional would kind of look like this. Um, that's a, just kind of an artist rendering, right? There would be, it would start with this, like, war eagle on a scepter in the very front, Okay? And in Rome, the eagle, the Roman eagle, the Roman eagle was the symbol of like speed and power. It was this idea of like, look how strong the Roman army is, right? And 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 then beside them, behind them, there would be um, thousands of Roman soldiers, fully decked out in battle regalia. They would be holding signs that would say stuff like, "Caesar is Lord, Caesar is King. We come in the name of Caesar." Um, it was really propaganda at its finest. Right? And then, of course, usually right in the middle of the procession, there would be Pilate, and he would be riding a horse, or he would be in a chariot pulled by multiple horses. And um, 
you know, there's always a guy on a horse in these symbols of power and procession. And, and really, this procession was truly something to behold. And the main message, right, you can imagine was this. See how strong and powerful Rome is, right? We destroy our enemies. We conquer lands. Do not resist us. Resistance is futile. Do not even try anything. Right? When the Roman army marches through your town, the pomp and circumstance of it all is designed to let you know where your place is in the world. And it's under the hands of this incredibly powerful empire. So, family, Pilate enters Jerusalem with a procession from the west. Right? Now, all of that context, all that history, brings a lot out of our story in Mark. Right? Because... John Mark tells us the same week during the Passover festival um, that there's another processional going on, but this one's coming in from the east. Let's read uh, Mark 11 again. When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany on Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him and will return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door at the street corner. They untied it. Uh, the people around were like, uh, why are you taking my colt? The disciples said, look, the master needs it. They said, okay. And uh, they brought the colt to Jesus, put their coats on it. Jesus gets on this colt, and that's when they come through the east side of Jerusalem. So if we go back to the map. Uh, if you look on the right side, the Mount of Olives is right. I'm short, so this is not a good idea. Right over here. Okay. So Pilate's coming in. He's coming through here. Here's the Mount of Olives, Bethany and Bethpage. Jesus and them are going to come in from the east side of the city. All right? So, this idea of one procession coming in from the west, one procession coming in from the east, that's not the only difference that Mark is trying to bring out in this passage, right? These two processions, these two ways of entering the city, right? These two displays of authority and glory, they're so completely different, And it's not random that Jesus does what he does before he goes into the city. It's not random that Jesus decides to enter not as a guy on a horse or not surrounded by soldiers, but on the colt of a donkey, right? Not even like a grown donkey, a a child donkey, right? Let's take a quick look at Zechariah chapter 9. It's an Old Testament prophecy. It says this, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof. I love that. Daughter Jerusalem, right? Your king is coming, a good king who makes all things right, a humble king riding a donkey, a mere colt of a donkey, right? And the other gospel accounts of this, that's the prophecy that, um, that is kind of attached to Jesus entering the east side of the city on a donkey. And, um, you know, Jesus being a good Jew would have known that prophecy. And so he knows, okay, I'm going to get a donkey. I'm going to go into the city. And for a lot of us, we may think, okay, yeah, that's why Jesus did it. Bing, bang, boom. End of the story. He was just fulfilling a prophecy. But hold on, because if you read the rest of that passage, it says really fun and crazy stuff. Right? Jesus enters on a donkey not just as an act of fulfilling, of fulfilling prophecy, but he's actually intentionally making a very bold and defiant statement against Rome. Here's the rest. Literally right after that section in Zechariah, it says this. This is God speaking to his people. I've had it with war. 
No more chariots in Ephraim, which is just a tribe of of, of, uh, Judah. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords, no more spears, no more bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations. He being the king coming in on a donkey. He will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas, which is just a really Jewish way of saying everywhere. Okay? Right? That's the immediate after story of a king riding in on a donkey. So Jesus doesn't enter on a horse. He doesn't enter on foot with soldiers around him. He enters on a colt of a donkey as a king that is opposed to war. He's a king that's opposed to the powerful elite oppressing the poor. He's a king that's opposed to the priests in the temple profiting off of all the poor Jews coming into town for the Passover festival. Because what you did when you were a Jew to celebrate Passover is you had to go to the temple, you had to change out your money for a very specific temple money, and then you had to pay ridiculous prices for a like special lamb to sacrifice. And so all of the, the, the priests, like the Pharisees, they would make tons of money off of this. Right? And Jesus is entering as someone who is opposed to this sort of exploitation. Jesus is showing that he is the king, but that his kingdom, his procession, his way of entering the city, it's completely upside down from the way of the world. Completely upside down. Right? The world tells us that power is like a victorious guy on a horse. And here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey. And in another gospel account, it says that he's actually weeping over the city. Right? So let's imagine Pilate's procession. Pomp, circumstance, battle. They're about to go to war. It's all a display of might and force. Right? And here's Jesus. Donkey, palm branches, people desperately crying, save us from the oppressed, from the oppressors, and tears coming down his face. Now, family, just because Jesus' procession looks like weakness, it doesn't mean that it isn't powerful, right? Everything Jesus is doing speaks of a completely different kind of power. Jesus flips everything on its head, right? He is claiming power. He is claiming to be the king, but his crown is going to be a crown of thorns, right? His throne is going to be a Roman cross. His coronation will be his sacrifice as the Lamb of God. His humble weakness is what it is his mighty strength. His victory will come only after a defeat on the cross that puts into motion the establishing of a kingdom of love and justice and peace and surrender. Right? Jesus is intentionally showing a display of defiance against the powers of Rome and therefore a display of defiance against all the powers and systems of the empires of the world. Because he is claiming that he is the true king. He is the true source of power. But he's a humble king, right? A king that carries the burdens of his people on his back, like a donkey carries the burdens of the peasant farmer. He's a king that wants to end all wars and brings peace, right? A king that is waved into power not by a hundred-gun salute or not by the money of a really powerful lobbying organization, but by the shouts of poor Jews saying, save us, and by branches that they went and cut out in the field. That's how Jesus is waved into power. Family, to end today, there are two ways to enter a city. There are two ways to enter your marriage. There are two ways to enter the workplace. Two ways to enter your financial situation. There are two ways to treat the foreigner. 
there are two processions that are competing for your attendance and they're competing for your attention. So which procession is drawing you near? Which parade of power are you running to? Which kingdom do you think offers real peace and real life? Family, I want us to really just look deep down and ask ourselves, which king am I currently serving, right? Am I giving my loyalty and my money and my time to the kingdoms of the world in this kind of false promise that I might gain military might or personal wealth or political power or maybe the security from people that I don't like that don't look like me? Am I seeking self-glory? Am I looking to be served? Am I looking to make a profit off the exploitations of others? Or do I serve a king that has real power and real authority? A king who chooses humility, love, surrender, justice. As Palm Sunday rolls into Holy Week, right, we're going to read the rest of this story. And, uh, and I want you to pay close attention to just how long those shouts of Hosanna last. Right? Jesus' kingly beginning quickly goes south in our story. Right? Look how the triumph of Palm Sunday turns into tragedy on Good Friday. Look how acceptance turns into rejection. How victory turns into defeat. Loyalty turns into betrayal. Hope turns into sorrow. And Jesus' parade march quickly turns into his death march. Holy Week begins with this religious, Zionist joy, this hope. And it ends with the reality of death. Family, if there's anything I could leave you with, um, it's just to remind you and encourage you, the way of Jesus is a call to come and die. It is a call to come and die. It's a call to give yourself away for others, especially the others who are poor and sick and lonely and oppressed and pushed down by the powers and systems of our world. But this call to death, right? We're going to celebrate it in a week. It's not God's last word for Jesus. And if we follow in the way of Jesus, it's not God's last word for us either. Easter Sunday is coming, and as quickly as hope turned into defeat, it all reverses. Jesus proves his kingdom by taking upon himself on the cross all of the hatred, all of the evil, all of the injustice in the world, and he buries it with himself, and he resurrects from the dead, and he recycles everything bad and evil. He recycles all of the weight of our full sin and rebellion, And he recycles it out into love and peace and joy for every single person who wants to enter the kingdom. That's our king. That's the real king. Right? He doesn't show his might by brute force. He doesn't crush the empires the way that we want him to. He takes everything on himself. He takes all of it, all of the evil, all of the, 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 the stuff, the crap that keeps it from being right. And he takes it upon himself and then he recycles it out as love and eternal life. That's our king. So family, which kingdom do you really want to be a part of? Which way do you want to enter the cities in your life? Because look, you can't be at both parades at the same time. You can't have one foot over here and one foot over here. They're on different sides of the city. You've got to pick one you got to pick one procession to be a part of. Which one are you in? Which one do you want to be in? Do you want to be in the one with the guy on a horse? Because that, that has some promise of power. Or do you want to be in the one with the guy on a donkey? 
Because that's the one that lasts. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, you are the real king. Your way is the way that leads to life. Your kingdom is the one that will last forever. It doesn't show itself by violence or war or force or oppression. It shows itself through love and surrender and sacrifice and forgiveness. Holy Spirit, I pray this week as we engage in Holy Week that you just, you make it clear to us which procession we're in. Are we putting our hope and trust in the ways of this world, in the pilots, in the governments, in the political parties, in the economic systems of all kinds? Or do we truly believe that real life, real freedom, real peace, real shalom comes by the way of Jesus? And then if we do, Holy Spirit, help us figure out how to enter the various cities of our life in Jesus' procession. How do we choose humility over and over again? How do we choose surrender over and over again? How do we choose to give ourselves away instead of seeking to get and seeking to be served? How do we choose the way of empowering others and lifting others up instead of exploiting others for our own benefit? Show us, show us eternal life in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus, you are the true king, and we love you, and it's your name that will be lifted forever and ever and ever and ever. When every single empire on earth will fall, yours will still be standing forever. And we want to be a part of that kingdom. Amen. I love you all so very much. Thank you. Um, It's going to be awesome at the picnic, right? It's catered, so just get your kids. Come on over. It's going to be really, really great. we got some cool stations of Holy Week that you can go through with your family. And um, and we're going to do communion stuff. I'm probably taking all your words, so you you finish. (laughs) I just want to make sure you know the address. 811 Elm Creek. You didn't need to make reservations. We're just proceeding. You can jump up and down out the door into your cars and drive out. And there'll be a meal for all of us. There's also a vegan choice if you're not into chicken. And then there's lots of good desserts. So uh, let's all go and celebrate together. And thank you, Noel. Yeah. Very profound word.